season three, Dad. Thoughts on food. Who thought we'd come this far? Well, it's very exciting to be back and back quite soon. And who have we got lined up? This will be a series of six episodes. We will have three guests kicking off with Tom Kerridge. Hooray! And then you and I will be doing the alternate podcasts, just me and you. After Tom Kerridge, we have your friend Andy Oliver. Lovely Andy. She's just an absolute joy. Then we speak to Tom Parker Bowles. (laughs) My old pal. Gosh. Well, there we go. It covers all the (laughs) options, I think. It does. It's going to be a great series. And we'll kick off with Tom Kerridge. We are lucky enough to have Tom Kerridge today. Tom Kerridge, one of the great heroes, in my view, and a a graduate of the Great British Menu. Well, not just a graduate, but now, taken your throne, Dad. (laughs) Listen, it couldn't have gone to a better bloke. Agreed. But he was also, he was a great hero on Great British Menu because he went through to the the final banquet twice, and I can still remember... The pork dish he did for the second time and the duck dish he did for the first time. And there's not so many people I can say that about. Well, I love eating in his restaurant, so I'm really looking forward to this chat. Well, I think he is one of the very few who's managed to do that very difficult thing of master the high end of restaurant cooking and also the not so high end of of pub cooking as well. Uh, And so what better person to to talk to about the state of uh, restaurants in this country? Tom, I think you're in Manchester, are you not? I am indeed in Manchester, and it's sunshiny, <laughs> which is uh, which makes a very, very pleasant change. Well, I'm sorry to drag you away from the sunshine, but uh, that is not a Manchester accent, unless I'm much mistaken. No, no, it's most definitely a bumpkin accent. I'm from Gloucester. You are? Whereabouts in Gloucester? You're from Gloucester itself? Right in the centre, pretty much. Really? Yeah, and you think of Gloucestershire, and you think of the rolling countryside, and you yeah. think of... You know the Cotswolds, and but I'm actually from right, right close in the centre. From it, I grew up in an area called well, originally was Tuffley, then Wadham and Podsmead, and then Abbeydale and Matson. So it's kind of like all around the foothill of Robinswood Hill, and it's very, very close to the city centre. Yeah. And <laughs> to go and watch the cherry and white triumphantly win rugby matches. <laughs> One of the few rugby clubs that hasn't actually gone bust yet, so that's a that's a good thing. Did you ever play rugby? I did. What were you? What position? I was a front row prop forward. <laughs> I was tight head prop, number three. I was a number three. Um, and it was, I, I think everybody in Gloucester plays rugby. That was it. Yeah. I wasn't very good. I, although I, the school and the club that I played for was very good. We won lots and lots of things. But that was because there were 14 other players that were very good. And I just kind of quite happily took part. You surfed along on the talent of others. <laughs> but on the other hand, you are probably now the, the most famous uh, Gloucestershire ex-rugby player. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've, I've got to be honest, I think Phil Vickery and Mark Cornwall might have a few things to say about that. There's a few um, great rugby players that have come from Gloucester. Mike Teague, absolute hero. 
Uh, what about Mike Tyndall? I mean, he's now royalty. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I think okay, we'll give you we'll give you Mike Tyndall. <laughs> so, how did you how did you work your way through from being third front row to um, being you know where you are now, which is one of the great sort of chefs of our time? Oh, that's a, that, that's wonderfully kind words, Matthew. It, it, it just came from being one of the luckiest people alive. That when you're 18, because so many people and so many kids, and you see it now when I've got kids, and I'm sure between yourself and Lois, it must be the same that you look at them and you you want your kids to be able to achieve what they want to achieve and where they want to go. But quite often in your teenage years, you have no idea what you want to do. Like the reality of your dream of where you're going to be is is not anywhere near where you're going to be as an adult. But as an 18-year-old, I was so lucky that I walked into a kitchen and just the energy of the space, the industry grabbed me. It made me, it made me so excited. And I know I'm very lucky because there's not many people that that happens to for their lives and their careers. Lots of people end up with jobs and lots of people end up earning money so that they can live for a weekend. But I was so lucky that my life, my whole life is about food. So every single day, seven days a week, it's about work and life. And But it's not really, I work very, very hard, don't get me wrong. However, if it's your whole life, it's what your energy is. I mean, Matthew, you're the same. It's about food. Your life is food. And, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm about eating it. All I've got to do. Yeah. Well, yeah, but great. <laughs> and does it still give you the same sort of thrill that you have now that you had when you first discovered it? Yeah, and in some ways it's it's different because you know I'm I'm nearly fifty. No, you go from no. you know when you're an eighteen year old. Yeah, fifty next just year. Scarcely unwrapped. Life's adventure's just beginning for you. <laughs> but you get to that point, don't you? When kitchens are about excitement and buzz and adrenaline, and when you're in your early twenties and you're actually quite good at it, and you're living your full and best life, and you're partying and you're playing hard and you're working hard and as it's life, it catches up with you and, you know, you can't do those sort of things anymore. Um, I still get the same thrill and buzz from being a restaurateur, owning multiple sites and working with the team and encouragement. And, you know, one of our biggest achievements undoubtedly is having um, people that have been in the business for 10, 12, 15 years, you know, and you look at that as they grow and they have then kids of their own and, you know, it's a wonderfully exciting industry to be in, and I still love every single minute of it. But your attitude to it, or how you're involved in it, or immersed in it, does develop as well. I, I should have known you before, but the first time I remember you, you know, racing like a comet across the horizon, was at um, the Great British Menu. Yeah, so I remember. So the Great British, I did do something with you previously, and that was on that. The show Market Kitchen. Oh, Market Kitchen, yes, that's right, yes. You're yeah, right. which which was actually what a groundbreaking kind of, I suppose, magazine-style food show. It was fantastic, and now, I mean, it's been copied and repeated many, many a time, but, you know, it was a great, great TV show. Those studios were fantastic. It, it was always a really good energy in the Market Kitchen space. But then, yeah, great British menu. It launched quite a lot of it, because it's also where Matt Tebbert, do you remember? That's where he started off his his career, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I do remember you did come up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, and some posh bloke mate of yours, uh, what's his name? Tom, Tom Parker. Parker. <laughs> I remember him being on that as well. <laughs> what's that? Whatever happened to him? <laughs> he went up in the world. <laughs> yeah, I think. But it was. <laughs> But it was great. I mean, 
it was fantastic. It was really good fun. And then obviously, yeah, it's a great British menu, which was, you know, Matthew, you've been, you've been a huge part of it for 17 seasons. You know, it's been one of those shows that has been not just great for, for chefs and television, but actually for the British food scene, it's so reflective of, um, the whole of the United Kingdom that it isn't just about London central no. restaurants that, you know, that show has been so incredibly important, um, as part of the last 20 years of the British food scene's growth, um, because it's encouraged chefs, restaurateurs, um, to be, represent their area, cook the food from their province, be there, be proud of where they come from, stand firm and, and show the rest of the country that there is great cookery in Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, the Northwest, the Northeast. You know, it's not just about the Southeast and, uh, and that London-centric kind of vibe or food critics that wouldn't leave London kind of ideal. Great British menu yeah. is so, so important and is still so important in that British food scene. And I think, Dad, you I remember at the beginning, of, of GBM, I remember you saying to me, explaining the show to me, that that's one of the reasons you felt so passionate about it, uh, was that it was going around the country and you were leaving the big city and, you know, it wasn't isolating people anymore. It got, it allowed a whole generation of really talented chefs to flourish in places where they would have had a real hard time if it hadn't been for that television exposure. And do you think it made an important contribution to your your own particular Ascent up uh, from from pub to Michelin starred gastro pub. Yeah, well, the, the Hand of Flowers had a Michelin star before I competed in Great British Menu, but and at that point, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, I think that was really when Great British Menu properly hit its stride of not just a small cookery program that represented regions. It actually had lots of great cooks on it, but also former winners started to come back and give opinions like Richard Corrigan and Jason Atherton. And, and all of a sudden it started developing into something. It gained huge amounts of traction and it, lots of people watch it. Millions of people watch it. And so if you were a great British menu winner, or even, you know, even if you just came across well, what happened is there would be people that would go on tours of Great British Menu kitchens up and down the country to go and eat the food and the dishes that won. So it might not, I don't know necessarily if it has quite the same effect because the world has moved on another 10, 15 years later in, you know, there's much more in the way of social media. There's many more channels. There's lots of different ways that chefs and restaurants drive profile now. It's a multimedia way of, you know, 15 years later, 10 years later. However, it's still incredibly important in raising profile, um, bringing, showcasing new generations of chefs. So there's many chefs that are competing on it now that are chefs that have worked underneath myself or worked underneath Jason or worked underneath Paul Ainsworth or worked underneath Angela Hartnett. Or, you know, so it's kind of this beautiful role. And the way that it always represents, it's great entertainment, okay? You know, it is great entertainment. But it, it does also put it front and centre. It's always about the food and the produce, how it's represented, what it looks like, how it's cooked and how well it does. What do you think, and maybe it's evolved from the beginning to now, I don't know because of the scale of it, but what do you think it means to young chefs coming onto GBM now 
in terms of when they look at their career, what do you think it means to them to come on the show? Listen, as somebody who won it twice, uh, I, it, it's huge, it's massive, it, and it means a great deal. And it means a great deal now. You look at Spencer, who won it last year. It suddenly mm. put an incredible chef, and I would, I would say probably the best competitor that Great British Menus ever had. Like the best, like his food was just magical. Everything he touched was phenomenal. His his nod to classical cookery, but also with that modern take. It's it is the most wonderful representation of British food. But for mm. Spencer. It's, it's a huge thing. It was huge for him to win. And any chef that competes in it, and you can tell they're so passionate about winning it. They don't, they're not just going on there because it'll get them more Instagram followers. They want to win. And that's where you see where it gets slightly gnarly and a bit competitive. and a bit Because they, they genuinely want to win. And it's the first time that many of them have appeared on television. So that's of nervousness. And you can always get that. Though. Some of them aren't quite sure how to... Because at the end of the day, it still is a television program. There's a whole crew and a cast that are making a TV show. You are a cookery. You're in a cookery competition that essentially is the TV show. So the chefs that always do best are normally the ones that understand quite quickly that if you help the cameraman, you help the producer, give them what they want, gives you more time to concentrate on your cooking, or, or they're the ones that have competed year one, didn't win, learn very, very valuable lessons of how that kitchen works and how it operates, cook amazingly, but can come back and sit into that television environment and go, okay, now I can deliver. I can deliver the food that I want to deliver. But also I know that I'll get more time. I can get more. If I actually work alongside the TV crew rather than try and fight against them, no one's, no one there wants you to lose. Everyone wants to encourage you to win. But you also have to realise that they are filming you you are mic'd up it takes some chefs rather longer to learn that lesson than others it took daniel tiffin i think five attempts before he he finally conned on to what it was all about yeah oh yeah listen daniel knew exactly how to cope with it daniel knew exactly exactly what he should be doing but daniel just can't he just just can't hold it in he just can't hold it in Daniel's the most wonderful, passionate, incredible chef and a dear, dear friend that we, in fact, we, we share pretty close our birthdays. We're almost the same age. So we had our big 40th birthday together. We'll have a big 50th birthday together. We do. Daniel was actually the person that informed me that we'd won a Michelin star at the Hand oh, of really? Flowers. So like, and he is one of the most driven, incredible, brilliant human beings. But his passion, and you can see that it comes across <laughs> in the kitchen, his passion, his drive. He just, even if the cameras are on him, he doesn't care. He's got to let everybody know how passionate yeah. he is. How have you found the transition to being at the judge? I know it's been a year now, being in, in, at the judge's table. I, I'm immensely proud. So um, on a number of reasons. One, because the show has been such a, f- a fundamental part of my career and, uh, and our business and how it's gone. The fact that I, you know, you've gone from winning it to being a mentor to now being a judge. Like, I've been completely involved in the TV show now for 12, 13 years, which, you know, I, I'm hugely proud of. But also to be able to grab the mantle from, you know, your dear father, and, and who, who who is, you know, when you're a chef and you're competing, you're always looking for which of those judges, whose feedback is the most valuable. And for me, it was always Matthew, because he was the one that was 
solely immersed in food, was there as a food critic, but also has a wonderful understanding of what chefs are trying to connect to. Matthew is someone who's driven by food with a passion for the flavour, the produce, the, the kind of artisan essential things that people get involved in that food industry for, that, that connection as a human uh, with heart and soul. Whereas Oliver was there as a restaurateur with the understanding of how that should work and that viewpoint. And Prue was there from, you know, another slightly different angle with a, a more kind of like teacher-like expertise. So the one that always made, that I wanted to impress as, as someone who was cooking, it was always Matthew. It was always the the very um, generous, knowledgeable. Oh. Why, why, why? I thought it was a rule of fear. <laughs> Talking as your daughter, you've never managed the rule of fear yeah, very well. I've, I've tried. <laughs> okay. Tell me, does Michelin, did Michelin make a great deal of difference to you as well? Getting your first Michelin. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. It's. Listen, I mean, lots of people would always say, oh, it doesn't matter anymore, it's not that. It's the greatest guide, it's the best guide, unquestionably, for lots of different reasons. One, it's globally recognised. Two, irrespective of what people think, you never know where they're coming. They don't give you any feedback. They might announce once they've eaten, and they go, and you only know when the guidebook comes out. It is not influenced in any way by fashions it's not influenced by fads it's not influenced by voting or lists or it's driven by um inspectors that have been within that that their, their careers and their jobs for a long 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 time and they all travel the world so you know and we're very fortunate in the uk that we're culturally very rich you know you can eat in italian restaurants spanish restaurants indian restaurants chinese restaurants british pubs French fine dining, and they can all have Michelin stars. So the one thing that they always look for, and I, someone says, how do you win a Michelin star? I don't know, but I would say it's passion-driven. It's consistency is the one thing. Constantly trying to, to drive yourself and make yourself a little bit better every single day. So being a pub that won a Michelin star, it, it, was, it becomes suddenly incredibly interesting for a lot of people because it changed that perception. that Now, it was never Michelin's fault that everybody assumed that Michelin-style restaurants are posh and you have to have tablecloths and you have to go wear a shirt and a tie. It's just that, you know, during the 80s and 90s, those restaurants are where the best cooks were cooking and that style of restaurant is the ones that won stars because that's where the best chefs were cooking. As it diversified throughout the 90s and then into the early 2000s, people, those chefs were cooking in different spaces. We were cooking in pubs that where there were no tablecloths there were no um, waiting staff in suits. There was no, it was just actually, but it was still about the food being consistent. So all of a sudden, you know, that Michelin star is awarded because it is about food. And then I think when you get to that second star, um, that was a very different thing. I mean, we were the first pub to do it and it became, I, I think the difference is with the, between a one star and a two star, and I don't really know. I mean, you can eat in two star restaurants and they are the most fabulous places. You can eat in three-star restaurants and they're absolutely world-class. But I think the difference between a two-star and a one-star is that if you put every plate of food up, and there's, about, I don't know, around about 25 two-mission-star restaurants, if you put a main course from every chef that had two-mission-stars, I think Matthew would be able to tell you at least 90% of which chef has cooked that main course. So I think there's a level of what happened. If you go, if you go that is brilliant Michelin starred cookery 
However, it's now taken onto a level where it has personality. Now, I do think out of Mission Star restaurants, there's lots of them that are exceptional and amazing. But perhaps the characteristics of those chefs aren't quite showing through yet. So the level of the food is outstanding. Everything is great. The produce is beautiful. It's treated with world classy. It's it's well deserving of a star. But actually, does it grab personality now? Is that chef beginning to showcase what they do? And I think that might be the difference between one and two stars. That's fascinating analysis. I must say, I've never really thought about the distinctions between the two beyond, I suppose, the natural instinct to think, well, it's just getting better and better, isn't it? But actually, there's a a really interesting point. It's about bringing in identity. And I suppose that probably comes because the shift between one star to two star is a chef's built in confidence and, um, you know, had the time and, and maybe now the space and the and the notor- you know, notoriety to be able to build that identity through their food. Yeah, I, I think there's always an argument that a two-star is better than a one-star, and particularly the guests, because it's like that tiered system. A two-mission-star restaurant is better than a one-mission-star restaurant. A three-mission-star restaurant is better than a two. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. What I do think is it perhaps it has more personality or it has more, uh, it has its own, it cre- begins to create its own aura. You know, if you eat in a three-mission-star restaurant, they are incredibly individual. You know, there is, it is, uh, you are unable to repeat it. You know, it is just, they're one-off gems, absolutely magical. And I think that just kind of filters down the line. It doesn't necessarily mean that one's better than the other. I think it's just that one has created its own kind of aura uh, of magic that floats Well, back. I must say, we, Lois and I had, I must say, I remember having a wonderful, darling, do you remember this? A wonderful dinner in the, in Tom's other pub in, the, in Marlowe. Yes. What, the coach? The coach, yeah. Do you remember we went there one evening? I go back to the coach on a very regular basis. I go with my boyfriend who um, absolutely adores all of your food. He's been he's been to most of your restaurants and we go back to the coach a lot. And I cannot get over your mushroom, not risotto, risotto. It is the most exquisite plate of food. And the last time we were there, I ordered two portions just for myself. It's just, it's it's such a beautiful, imaginative you take. You can see she's my daughter, can't you? <laughs> two two portions of the same dish. <laughs> the, the thing about the coach, and Sarah is the head chef there now, she's been with us for nine years, and she's an incredible cook and a, and a, and a, a brilliant chef and has grown and gone from strength to strength. But that dish itself is kind of a robbed idea from Claude Bozzi. So Claude is a great, great friend of mine, is uh, obviously has t- a two Michelin star restaurant called Babendum, and he did a beautiful dish with celeriac that was all diced like the same size as rice and cooked um, with celeriac stock, and it was a, I, so it felt like a celeriac risotto, but there was no rice at all. And I loved that idea, so we stole it and put it on at the hand of flowers, and we did it with potato. So we cooked mm. it with baked potato stock, and it was infused with those potato skins. And made it absolutely delicious. And that kind of potato uh, risotto worked so well. But then when we came to open the coach, it, we got to the point where it, it went, how do we make, listen, we, we want to keep it slightly simpler. The coach is very fortunately a one mission star space, but it's a lot more casual. It's got TV screens on. You can sit there and you order a few bits and bobs and the rotisserie is there and you book it on the day. You can walk in. But we wanted that mushroom risotto, but we do it as diced mushrooms, as mushrooms that have been diced up the same size as rice, cooked out in a mushroom stock with a mushroom puree, with raw mushrooms over it, over it with grated parmesan and chai. So it's just about the intensity of driving that mushroom flavour. But with the texture, 
that's just like a risotto. Absolutely. It made me think, oh, well, what's the point in the rice in a risotto anymore? I'll happily do that over <laughs> again. And that's why it's on the menu is mushroom risotto pork <laughs> Yeah. Uh, he, is a great, he's a, he is a wonderful chef, Claude, isn't he? He's a, but he also has that sort of monumental classical background too. Is your, is your background classical, would you say, as a, as a cook, as a chef? Yeah, I mean, I'm a chef that grew up in the 90s, you know, so I, I went into the kitchen in 1991. And at that time, it was all about French-style cuisine. You know, it was all about um, stocks and sauces and dairy. And, and I'm still very much in that way inclined of cooking. Um, and then through the mid-90s, there was lots of kind of embracing European food. You remember, like, you would do mashed potato, but you'd put black olives in it. Or you do pesto yeah. with it, or you do you do little pressed tiams of vegetables, or you know the, the kind of lots of things with red pepper or ratatouille. So we were kind of like heading for this kind of like starting to embrace more Mediterranean cookery, and I think that's kind of like um, th- that kind of Alistair Little style cooking that was doing very well started infiltrating into mainstream Michelin star kind of fine dining cooking where you could start embracing those much more, uh, I, I think, French, Italian, Spanish flavours. But then underneath that, there was great chefs like Gary Rhodes and Phil Vickery, who were fundamentally pushing British yeah. produce, British cookery. And it started morphing into this one kind of um, British produce, Mediterranean outlook. And then Gary suddenly took it into... Steak and kidney pudding, bread and butter pudding, you know, grilled sea bass with a, a, like, like just crab dressing. And, and it was just magic. When Gary's was the next level of all of a sudden this great found, founder of uh, and being proud of amazing British cookery. And so, yeah, my, my background is very classical, but very much in that mm. Gary Rhodes but the, style. But it's also, it was the appreciation of the extraordinary quality of, of ingredients that you could find it's appreciating you know it's suddenly you know we didn't have to buy everything from Rangis in Paris actually you could find it from you know farm farmhouse down the road we started appreciating what we produced the fantastic meat the great dairy uh, you know and even our fruit and vegetables and things like that now come through so I think you know there's been a huge that's one of the great sea changes of eating out in my lifetime there has I, I think, do you know what? I think one of the biggest pushes and one of the greatest influences on modern British cookery isn't actually a British chef. I actually think it's Rene Redzepi. So Noma, when it opened, of using those ingredients that were just to that surrounding area, using Scandinavian food, using the, you know, the ingredients that were foraged that were there, that they were proud of, all of a sudden, British chefs were going there and going, this is the most magical, amazing restaurant. And then started going, hold on a minute. You know, why aren't we celebrating turnips and smoking and curing? Yeah. And why aren't we celebrating Swedes and carrots and slow cooking and braising? And Because this is what we do. We are a Northern European yeah. country. We wear jumpers most of the time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, what? how do we... We haven't got to keep looking to... Provence. We haven't got to keep looking to what's going on in Barcelona or San Sebastian. Hold on a minute. What have we got here? 
And I, I really do think that Rene's outlook of what happened at Noma, particularly in the beginning, had a huge influence on many chefs now that went, actually, let's embrace our yeah. produce. Let's embrace what we do and cook it in a, with our skill set that we've learned. And, and, and so I actually think one of the great... Between Gary Rhodes and Rene Rezepi, I think we've put, they've put, done a great job of putting British no. food on the map. <laughs> now, I would say, actually, now, Paul, don't people come and see what you're doing and how you do it. Well, like, like, like everything, Matthew, it's a huge team effort. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things we're most proud of is the amount of people that have been with us for a long, long time and worked with us for years and years and years, decades. And it's, it's all about that team collective. Yeah, but so, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't stay if it wasn't for you. Well, yeah, we, we just pay them loads of money. <laughs> you're, too, you're too bloody modest, Tom Kerridge. You should learn to, say, you should learn to take a compliment. Well, we did, listen, we, we, we do. We work really hardly to try to create a pleasant and kind working atmosphere. But also, we demand 100%. We work 100%. I haven't got anything wrong with I, I, you know, hard work is amazing, but it doesn't mean to say that you can't love it. Like loving hard work, that sense of achievement, that sense of doing something. And because we all started as a young team, there's many in the team that were with us before we had no, when we had like just one, one measly Michelin star, you know. Measly? Measly? Some people would give their eye teeth to have a measly Michelin <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I say that quite tongue-in-cheek, Matthew. <laughs> like, the idea of it being the fact that, you know, you moved to two, but we got to two because not because of me, because of all of us as a creative force have been a part of that journey. And many of those people are still part of that journey. I think it goes back to what you were saying, how privileged you are to, to work in something that you feel really passionate about. And, and I think you're completely right, and I can relate to you know, if you don't have a natural vocation or you haven't found your natural vocation, then, you know, work can sit very much in the chore world. But if you love it and you're passionate about it, then that aka hard work bit actually is really easy and it comes naturally. It might be exhausting, etc. But it doesn't feel like you're having to force it because you're naturally passionate. So I um, I can only say I'm rather <laughs> envious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I hugely recognise how lucky I am and Many people, and I think many people within hospitality that have been in it for years will say the same thing. You know, they love it. There's so many ridiculous stories or amazing accounts of things that have happened or travel or food that you've eaten that you've never experienced. Things that in a normal daily life, hospitality and food is a, an incredible industry to be in that offers so many different opportunities. Listen, we all know it's not the highest paid. That's okay. And then if you stick to it, you do well, you can earn good money. But the reality of it is it offers life experiences and life is there for living. And you can live through hospitality and visit and see and meet and shake hands with and eat. I mean, eat so many different, incredible, brilliant things that take you around the world. Travel, yes. Tra mm. Travelling around the world from the, from the comfort of your own restaurant table. That's the <laughs> Sounds greatly easier yeah. than getting on an aeroplane. Do you think, you know, is it, you have a, you're married to a, a remarkable woman. Beth, this has clearly been, you know, you know, you're a driven man. Has this been times when it's been quite difficult for, for her or for both of you in terms of, you know, just managing life? Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, listen, we've been married for 22 years. Um, and like I think in every marriage, it takes work and you grow and adapt. And over 22 years, people 
changed, but we've both been very fortunate that we both run parallel lives. I married an artist. When I first met Beth, she, she is an artist. She's always been an artist. She's always been this incredible person. Irrespective of, you know, I, I, we're still the same people. I'm still, you know, some people meet me and they go, they know you from the telly and they forget, like, Beth's known me, known me for 25 years. It's, you know, you grow together and she, ha she has a show on right now at the Sartre Gallery and, and, and another show later in the year in the centre of Mayfair. And she's got a huge sculpture at the front of the Dubai Opera House. She has a bit, like, she has this life where we've been able to work hard. We opened the Hand of Flowers so that I could cook and she can make uncompromised art. And that was the only thing that we had. Uh, somewhere I can cook, she can make art. And none of it's been about money. Beth, again, like me, is very fortunate that she's in a world that she loves. She loves making art. That's what she does. And she's very fortunate, you know, like me, to go, wow, I can do this. And I, and I do it as a job, as a profession. But yeah, of course there's hard times. I think probably the hardest time is when, when we first opened the Hand of Flowers. So you risk every single penny. We, I was 31 years old. We had like zero money. We, we lied to the bank. We, 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 we took loans out. We maxed out on credit cards. We, we risked everything, risked everything that we had. Like a, a small little property that we remortgaged and told the bank that we were going to build an extension, but we did and we bought the Hand of Flowers tenancy instead and paid for all the rubbish furniture that was inside it. It was just like, you know, and then the bank find out and then you like, so you go through all these, and we're living upstairs in one bedroom, you know, there was me and Beth and two dogs in one bedroom <laughs> above the Hand of Flowers and the other room was an office and we were there for a year and I think that was probably the most intense kind of like tinderbox space because you're running a business, it's new I, and I go from earning a salary, you know, as a head chef, you're earning a salary. You know how much you're going to earn. Um, mm. And it'd be the same, I think, for anybody who's opened their own business. You go from, you, you go, okay, I earn this much money, which means I can rent a flat or a house this big. My mortgage can be that. I can have a phone. I've got this much to spend each month on food. And then that might leave us enough to get, you know, a new pair of trainers or a Chinese takeaway, like whatever. Like that's, if you're salaried, you know what it is. The moment you throw that out, it suddenly becomes, my God, whatever I earn is mine. But actually, the reality is, is whatever I'm losing, I'm losing mine. I'm losing everything. We lose it. Like you, ha you, you start scrambling now. So you, that, that sense of survival, living in a single bedroom above a pub that you own, it, it's quite an intense space mm. to be. Um, but it's also amazing without going through that process. You know, we wouldn't be here 22 years later. You know, those sort of experiences that you get as a husband and wife, although they're intense and sometimes very difficult, they're also amazing. They're brilliant. The sense of achievement. You've achieved this together. We've built this together. You know, you go, you know, all of those things. Unless you have a go at it, unless you really roll the dice and have a go at living yeah. life, neither of us want to go through life in this kind of like beige area and then get to the end. I don't want that. I like making mistakes. I like learning from them. I like the roller coaster of up and down. I like the chaos of it. I like, you know, otherwise, what's the point? There's no point in just being medium. <laughs> Who wants medium? No one would ever <laughs> accuse you of being medium. Listen, I think that I think we've got a couple of questions. We have a couple of questions which from from our dedicated podcast listeners. One of them we've already spoken about, which was with regards to Michelin and how you feel about that and the, the future of it, etc. A gentleman called Carl has uh, asked us to ask you, 
how many courses is just too many on a tasting menu? <laughs> well, I, it, it actually, it thoroughly depends who's cooking it. So okay. when, when tasting menus first started coming about, and I think they probably started becoming recognised as an amazing thing from maybe Ferran Adrea at El Bulli and then Heston at the Fat Duck, and they, they were, there was a wonderful narrative to it. And there's purpose and it tells a story and there's a reasoning to it. And then we went through this bit where people would just make a tasting menu that were just smaller versions of an a la carte menu. That's not a tasting menu. That's just like we're just filling you up with offcuts. It's kind of like it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. That. But mm. the, we do guest episodes. We got a private dining room called The Shed and we had Gareth Ward from Nisha Hall come and he did 18 courses. But each course, tiny, magical, mouthful. Also, there's no sense of waiting. It's rolling. It's quick. It was done in two two hours. Yeah, I was going to say eighteen. You've got to. That's got to be fast paced because it otherwise is, you're gonna, you're going to be exhausted. Yeah, but this is a man who's just won two Michelin stars doing it. This is a man who's incredible. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is a purpose of driven and going right. Flavor of this, this flavor bomb, that flavor bomb. Get it out there. Roll it. Roll it. Roll it. It's not easy. The hand of flowers is a three course a la carte meal. That's it. This was eighteen courses of. Bang, one after the next, one after the next, one after the next. It's high energy. It was really good fun. It was super tasty. Everything about it was magic. So there is no point where tasting menus are, are not right. So there's, no, so there's no point where tasting menus, if they're done and curated properly, mm. they can go on for ages. Like, I don't want them to go on for four hours. I, I'll have 18 courses, right? But get it done in two, two and a half. That's fine. So I don't think it's how many courses are too many, it's how many hours are too long. That's probably the better question. Actually, another great chef, friend of mine, um, a guy that cooks in Hong Kong, a guy called Matt Arbamal, who's very funny but very clever, got a brilliant restaurant called Yardbird um, and a sushi space called Ronin. He, he described to me tasting menus, particularly in those hushed environments, as a bit like the movie Schindler's List. Like, <laughs> like it's incredibly well put together. It's fantastically performed. It's amazing, okay? Everything about it is just jaw-droppingly stunning. But it goes on forever, and you don't want to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> we have we have another other regular feature. A regular feature on the podcast. So we're, we're asking everybody one same question, which is, what is, and funnily enough, this came from a litter in completely different words, what is your dirty dish? So this is, you know, behind closed doors, ideally without an audience. Maybe Beth knows about it. But what's your dirty dish? So to be honest, I mean, you can pick so many different things. Um, but I really, I'm a big fan of kind of like childhood dishes that remind you. Like, so a baked potato with tinned corned beef, loads of butter, baked beans and grated like cheap cheese. For me, like, it's like, it's, a, it's an old school kind of like childhood family favourite. Well, as a chap who's <laughs> consumed a certain amount of Tom Kerridge food over the years, and indeed my, my daughter as well, thank you very, very much indeed. And keep cooking, that's all I say. Oh, what an extraordinarily nice man Tom is. That was a lovely chap. And I think one of the secrets is his voice has that fantastic Gloucestershire burr to it. It does, it's and just... I just love the, way, I love the way he calls everyone mate. 
<laughs> well, I think that the secret to Tom, as far as I can make out, really, is he he combines sort of un, uh, extraordinary passion for his industry and his profession, but with a really humane touch. And, you know, professional and serious, but also clearly really fun. Can I say he's an all-round good egg? <laughs> mm. 